2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 16, we read, I say again, let no one think me a fool, if otherwise at least receive me as a fool, that I also may boast a little. What I speak, I speak not according to the Lord, but as it were foolishly in this confidence of boasting, seeing that many boast according to the flesh, I also will boast. For you put up with fools gladly, since you yourselves are wise. For you put up with it if one brings you into bondage, if one devours you, if one takes from you, if one exalts himself, if one strikes you on the face, to our shame, I say that we were too weak for that. But in whatever anyone is bold, I speak foolishly. I am bold also. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more in labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep, in journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. Who is weak? And I'm not weak. Who is made to stumble? And I do not burn with indignation. If I must boast, I will boast in the things which concern my infirmity. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever knows that I'm not lying. In Damascus, the governor under Aretas, the king, was guarding the city of the Damascenes with a garrison, desiring to arrest me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall, and I escaped from his hands. Paul, in his ministry, has been the object of scorn, of ridicule, of abuse, of evil criticism. And in this chapter, Paul points to his sincerity and service in verses 1 through 15. His sincerity and suffering now in verses 16 through 33. In the first half of the chapter, Paul recounts his motives for service in verses 1 through 6. The rewards of service in verses 7 through 11. And then there was a brief look at the counterfeits of service in verses 12 through 15. Paul now adopts the arguments of his critics. And he's going to turn it on their head. Remember, Paul's critics were bragging. And boasting, elevating themselves. Paul's critics are the masters of ridicule. The critics of Paul are proud, immature, carnal, bragging, boasting, making every effort to elevate themselves and drag Paul down. And Paul points out, do they have something to boast about? Well, so does he. Do they have a record of accomplishment? Well, so does he. The critics of Paul bragged about their credentials in verses 16 through 21. Paul argues they used their credentials to harm the saints, to hurt the believers in Corinth. Paul uses his credentials to help the believers in verses 21 and 22. So how did Paul characterize 
his credentials. Throughout the chapter, jealousy for the church in verses 1 through 6. Generosity towards the church in verses 7 through 21. And now he's going to point out his sufferings for the church in verses 22 through 33. So my outline goes something like this. The minister's appeal to be received and heard in verses 16 through 21. The minister's heritage in verse 22. The minister's labor and suffering in verses 23 and 29. The minister's close call in verses 32 through 33. Most of you will never have to apply for a job as a pastor of a church. Some of you might. But can you imagine you're submitting your resume and people want to know what qualifies you for ministry? The book of 2 Corinthians is Paul's credentials in part for ministry. And he wants to be received and he wants to be heard. And so in verse 16 he says, I say again, let no one think me a fool. If otherwise, at least receive me as a fool, that I also may boast a little. He's already talked about how there's not much value in boasting. Paul hopes the reader will not think him a fool. But in case the reader decides to allow for the possibility that he might be a fool, he begs for a little indulgence. Now remember remember what we've said. Who are the critics? Are these the people in Corinth who are wondering about his credentials? We know in part that they're the Judaizers. Some people who have come from Jerusalem in part because of verse 22. Are they Hebrews? Apparently these false teachers were Jewish people who elevated themselves in their ministry. Now. They claim impressive credentials. They claim outstanding resumes. Remember what we've already learned at the beginning of the chapter. They claim that they're more attractive than Paul. He's not much to look at. They're better preachers than Paul. That might have been. So Paul will do what Paul hates to do. He's going to talk about himself. And for that He apologizes up front. But one of the things that you need to know is why Paul finds that necessary. Remember in verse 20, he's saying, For you put up with it if one brings you into bondage, if one devours you, if one takes from you. There's a reason why he's doing what he's doing. And so in verse 17, he says, What I speak, I speak not according to the Lord, But as it were, foolishly, in this confidence of boasting. There are two possible meanings to this passage. The first is that Paul's words are truly inspired, but these words were not given by command of the Lord. Or, and I think probably more likely, that the words are in fact inspired, but Paul's boasting isn't what Jesus would do. When we look at the life of Jesus, do we ever see Jesus bringing attention to himself, elevating himself, boasting about himself, bragging about himself? So I think it's more likely that Paul is acting in what seems like foolishness, what seems like engaging in self-glory, but it's a necessary exercise in order to help the Corinthians do something that they seem to have a great deal of struggle doing. And that's spotting a phony. That's spotting a fraud. That's spotting someone who claims to be one thing but is in fact another. And so in verse 18, he says, Seeing that many boast according to the flesh, I also will boast. The implication being these so-called self-serving apostles who boast about their credentials, well, guess what? I guess I will too. He will adopt the strategy of the critics, but with a twist, with an important twist. 
In verse 19 he says, For you put up with fools gladly since you yourself are wise. I hope most of you can see what's obvious. Paul isn't above adopting satire or irony or ridicule to make a point. So when he says, for you put up with fools gladly, who do you suppose he's talking about? The religious leaders and the self-serving apostles, since you yourselves are wise. Remember, the Corinthians considered themselves to be wise. That they wouldn't be taken in by foolishness. And then in verse 20, he says, For you put up with it if one brings you into bondage, if one devours you, if one takes from you, if one exalts himself, if one strikes you on the face. What kind of person, teacher, minister, are you Corinthians willing to put up with? And this is Paul's challenge. Again, it's obvious from the text, both from what we've already read and what we're about to read, these are the Judaizers. These are the false apostles, putting them into bondage. And what kind of bondage are they putting them into? The bondage of the law in Acts chapter 15, verse 10. Remember, I've told you over and over again that the first big controversy in the church was whether or not a Gentile would have to convert to Judaism in order to be a Christian. The big challenge in the first century was, do Gentiles have to become Jews in order to become Christians? And in verse 10 of chapter 15 of the book of Acts, it says, Now therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither their Our fathers nor we were able to bear, but we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. The admonition that has been given and received is Jews and Gentiles have something in common. They're both saved by grace. They're both saved by faith. That it is Jesus, it's the person of Jesus, his sacrifice, his death and his resurrection. And so the bondage that they're talking about is the bondage for the person who would say, you have to accept Christ as your Savior and observe the Sabbath, keep the law, do this, do that, do this, do that, do this, do that. And pretty soon the laundry list begins to overwhelm you. These false teachers were teaching that Jesus is not enough. And the message hasn't changed really throughout the centuries. There are many people who will tell you, hey, you know, it's really good that you go to Calvary and it's really good that you have a Bible and it's really good that you believe that Jesus saves you. And you would be correct that Jesus saves you. But guess what? There's so much more that you need to understand. There's so much more that you need to do. And so they'll invite you to read their book. They'll invite you to read their manual. They'll they'll invite you to read their, their laundry list of do's and don'ts. And so when Paul says, you put up with one who brings you into bondage, and look what else he says, if one devours you. What do you suppose Paul is talking about? It, I think it means swallow them. In what way? I think it means financially. I think it means making financial demands, material demands. They bring you into the bondage of the Mosaic law. If one devours you, in what sense? In other words, they see you not as beloved children and sheep to be taught, but they see dollar signs. They, they, they evaluate you on what you're able to bring to the table and what you're able to give. I think it means making financial demands. The false teachers weren't motivated by a deep love for the saints, but they were motivated by financial gain. And so he says, if one takes from you, literally in verse 20 when it says, if one takes from you, the original text reads, if 
he takes you captive. Let me see if I can explain the metaphor. In the ancient world, people hunted and they fished. Maybe some of you are hunters or fishermen or fisherwomen. And if you've ever gone hunting, when a hunter bags game, or when a fisherman has a fish on the line, it's an expression of of that culture if he takes you captive. In other words, when the hunter would... What's the word I'm looking for? When you corner the beast or you've, you've captured the prey or when you have the, the fish on the line. I think we have a, an idiomatic expression in our own culture and society. Oh, he's got you by the hook. I think that this is quite possibly what Paul is making reference to. These men are predators. The Corinthians were their prey. They had them on the hook. And so when Paul writes, if one strikes you, you know what that means. It means slap you in the face. Is this a literal slap? Let's just for purposes of discussion say it isn't. It isn't where the false teacher or the false pastor or the false apostle actually literally slaps you in the face. Let's tone it down just a little bit. What if it just means insulted, abused? Are there false teachers who are willing to abuse the people in their church? They may not literally slap them, but they humiliate them. I know that some of you are aware of some of the horrible things that have happened throughout time and space. Some of you are familiar with Jim Jones and and the cult that he started in San Francisco. And then he moved a bunch of people down to, to South America. And you would think, what kind of a person would follow somebody like that, bring them to a place... Encourage them to kill themselves and kill their own children. Surely there would be people who would go, wait a minute, wait a minute, this is a bad idea. Are there churches and are there religious organizations where the leaders of those churches and those organizations hurt the congregants, humiliate them, embarrass them, devour them? I think that this is what's going on. The false teachers were willing to assert authority or take authority. And this was an authority that was never given to them by Jesus. The Corinthians were being misled and they were being mistreated. So why in the world would these Corinthians put up with this kind of abuse and false teachers, but they're not willing to? To listen to the tender warnings of Paul the Apostle. The loving warnings. The truthful warnings. Doesn't it amaze you that people will put up with all kinds of abuses. From people who embrace false doctrine. People will put up with false doctrine and false teachers. And when someone comes along. And loves them. And encourages them. And doesn't want to lord it over their life. And doesn't want to be served. But wants to be the servant. What is it about that? What is that dynamic? Some of you may have grown up in a world. Where you knew about moms or grandmas. Who were abused by their husband. Maybe you yourself have been the victim of domestic violence and you ask the question, why would someone put up with repeated abuse? And the Judaizers seem to have all the elements of a sincere and and biblical faith. They seem to be on the surface okay. I mean, they were, after all, Jews. And they were, after all, from Jerusalem. And they were, after all, contemporaries with Jesus and the apostles. But you see, this is exactly what false teachers do even to this day. You see, the most effective false teacher is the one 
who looks not like a false teacher, who has enough elements in their repertoire that it looks like it's a Bible-believing, God-honoring, Bible-loving group of people, but they're wolves in sheep's clothing. And in verse 21, Paul says, To our shame, I say that we were too weak for that, but in whatever anyone is bold, I speak foolishly, I am bold also. In other words, again, Paul is employing irony. Don't you see the irony? To our shame, I say that we were too weak for that. And one person says, To our shame, I say that we, what does this mean? We, we weren't willing to abuse you. We weren't willing to humiliate you. We weren't willing to take advantage of you. Phillips translates this, I'm almost ashamed to say that I never did brave, strong things like that to you. Is it brave? Is it strong to humiliate, antagonize, abuse, and mistreat? No, again, he's using irony. Paul, in effect, is saying, is that really strength? Is it really strength that people slap you around, abuse you, manipulate you, take advantage of you? He says, if that's strength, then let me be weak. Were the false teachers bold? Yeah. So Paul says, then let me be bold. Moffat translate this, let them vaunt as they please. I am equal to them. Mind, this is the role of a fool. Verse 21, to our shame, I say that we're too weak for that. But in whatever else is anyone is bold, I speak foolishly, I'm bold too. Can you imagine a congregation saying to their, to their pastor, Pastor, we really like it when you manipulate us, hurt us, abuse us, take advantage of us. Bring it on. Give us more. Again, remember the challenge Paul faces. Who's the real true teacher? Who's the real true apostle? He's comparing credentials. How do you conform to your, your calling? Again, how, show me your diploma. Paul, remember the, the critics were saying, Paul, show us your letter from Peter or James or John. Show us your Bible certificate. Show us your seminary diploma. And Paul doesn't give a laundry list of his ministerial accomplishments. Paul, when he's asked, what gives you the right to be a pastor? Or what gives you the right to be a minister? Or what gives you the right to serve? He doesn't talk about graduating from the best seminary in the Middle East. He doesn't talk about being educated by the, the, one of the most important teachers of his day. He doesn't talk about his skills. He doesn't talk about his genius. He doesn't talk about his journeys. He doesn't talk about the testimony of changed lives. He doesn't give a laundry list of church plants. Look what he does. In verse 22, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. On the surface, apparently, again, the critics seem to have the right credentials. They were Jews. They were from Judea. They had access to this primary information. But they don't have the most important credential. The one that is important in the sight of God. The false teachers had left the Corinthians with the impression that Jewish ancestry was a big deal. That Jewish roots was more likely to invite God's favor. Does Jewish ancestry make ministry more legitimate? What do you suppose the answer is? Jesus has made it abundantly clear that he lives and he dies and he rises from the dead for Jew and Gentile. Paul will elsewhere write, there's neither Jew nor Gentile. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female, but all are one in Jesus Christ. Were the Jewish teachers holding on to the Jewish practices a little too tight? I'm going to suggest to you that that's exactly what was happening. 
Was it useless to boast in Jewish ancestry? Well, again, as far as God's concerned, everyone is equally sinners. Everyone equally needs grace. Did the lineage of the false teachers give them a superior standing in their own eyes to the Corinthians? And so once again, Paul is thinking it through. He's going, okay, you have put these guys on a pedestal. You've assumed a position of inferiority because they've assumed a position of superiority. So if you acknowledge their superior lineage, are you going to admire or at least admit my superior lineage? Again, are these things that prove apostolic authority? I'm going to suggest to you that they didn't have a proper understanding. The religious leaders... The Judaizers, and to a certain extent, even the Corinthians, because somehow they had lost sight of the gospel of grace and the word of God. There was no evidence of a sincere heart and a true love for God and the people of God. So Paul is going to continue with a series of proof for his ministerial credentials, and none of those proofs include outstanding achievements. Why doesn't Paul talk about personal appearance from Jesus? Why doesn't he say, hey, look, Jesus appeared to me. I'm the author of inspired scripture. In order to make his point, here's what he's going to point to. Pain. Suffering. Hardship. Let's look at Paul's resume. Here's what he puts puts down. This is why you should accept his apostolic authority. Defeat, disappointment, pressure, pain, weakness, hurt. Did I mention hurt? What in the world is Paul doing? Why in the world would Paul, wanting to help the Corinthians, abandon their association with the charismatic characters from Judea, why is he incorporating this line of thinking? I need you to think it through for just a moment. Paul isn't trying to impress the reader. He's trying to illustrate a point. Paul is painting a picture of the true servant of Jesus and what the true servant looks like So that the Corinthians will be able to spot the phony, the self-serving phony. What does that include? Paul doesn't deny the fact that ministry involves pain and pressure. Paul doesn't market his misery. The critics pressed him. And that's what leaked out. We get the impression that Paul is reluctant to speak about these things. Paul doesn't give us a theological treatise on on the whys of suffering. He doesn't analyze or moralize or apologize. Look what he writes. And if you can read these things and be unaffected, I don't know what to say to you. Listen to how he talks about his labor and his sufferings. In verse 23, he says, are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors, more abundant. In stripes, above measure. In prisons, more frequently. In deaths, Often. Look at the beginning of verse 23. Are they ministers of Christ? You know what I would encourage you to think about when you look at that passage and you read that question? It's to ask another question What does it mean to be a minister? I think most of you know the obvious answer. Well, a minister is a servant. Well, a minister is a person who serves. A minister is someone who comes alongside. What is a minister? He says, I speak as a fool. Does it include labor? Does it include suffering? Imagine if someone came to you and they said, what does it mean to be a father? What does it mean to be a mother? What does it mean to be a grandmother? 
Imagine you're giving advice to a young family that's getting ready to embark on the adventure called life. And they ask you the question, what does it mean to be a mom? Is it glamorous? It's a lot of work. And here Paul points to labor and suffering. Meaningful, practical, committed labor goes a long way to silencing the critics. He says, I am more and labor is more abundant. And by the way, this is going to be a practical way to ask and answer the question, Who's the minister? Who's the minister? Paul points to the fact that the minister is the one who serves. The minister is the one who gets up early. And the minister is the one who stays late. The minister is the one who labors. Paul never forgot that he was a follower of Jesus. And that Jesus worked. And that Jesus suffered. I want you to, again, think about the credentials that Paul is pointing to. He points to work and suffering. And Paul never forgets that he has to expect the same treatment that his master received. And so when Jesus came on the scene and Jesus as a minister, remember what he said to his own disciples, he who would be great among you, let him be the servant of all. If you want to be first, then be willing to be last. The way up is the way down. William MacDonald writes, quote, Paul reckoned that the more faithfully he served Christ and reproduced the Savior, the more abundantly he would suffer at the hands of men. To him, suffering was the mark, the badge of Christ's servants. Though he felt like a fool in thus boasting, necessity demanded that he speak the truth. And the truth was that these false teachers were not noted for their suffering." Because they chose the easy path. They avoided reproach. They avoided persecution. They avoided dishonor. Imagine saying to the religious leaders who have made their way to Judea, have have you ever been in jail? No. Are you kidding me? Jail? We're solid citizens. But what if it's jail because you've stood up for Christ? Because you love Christ. Christ because you love the Lord. So Paul is pointing out there are those who choose the easy path and there's those who choose the hard path. There's those who avoid reproach and persecution and dishonor. And then MacDonald points out that perhaps Paul felt for these reasons the critics in Corinth were in a poor position to attack him as the servant of Christ. And so in a very real sense, here's what Paul is doing. Look at them and look at me. Look at their real life and look at my real life. And so think about it. Look what Paul is putting on his resume. In labors, more abundant. This includes the scope of his missionary journeys. He travels everywhere to make Jesus known. In stripes above measure. If you're thinking that this means beatings and I've lost count, then you've got the text exactly right. These are beatings that Paul received. He received beatings from the Jews. He received beatings from the Greeks. He received beatings from the Romans. He received beatings from the heathen. He received beatings from the pagans. In prisons more frequent. The only imprisonments recorded, at least up to this point in Paul's career, is in Acts chapter 16, verse 23, where Paul and Silas were thrown into prison in Philippi. But now we learn something from this tiny passage of Scripture. It wasn't the only time. It wasn't the only time that he was tossed in the slammer. We learn that Paul was no stranger to incarceration, to dungeons. Paul knew what it was like to be locked away in deaths often. What's Paul thinking? Paul is thinking... 
How many times did I barely escape with my life? So he says, in deaths often, but he doesn't go into detail. We know one of the details from Acts chapter 14, verse 19. He's preaching. It's Lystra. There's a mob and a riot. It breaks out. The people come out. They take stones. They begin tossing them at Paul. He's plummeted. He's pelted and pummeled by the stones. He loses consciousness. They grab him by the legs. They drag him outside of the city and they leave him for dead. But it's not the only time. How many times was Paul beaten and left for dead? And in verse 24, he says, From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. In the Jewish law, it required that corporeal punishment or corporal punishment could not exceed 40 stripes in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 3. So if you were guilty of a heinous crime, They would take you and they would beat you. And it wasn't uncommon for the Jews to inflict 39 lashes, but in keeping with the law, they always made it less one so that they wouldn't be guilty of breaking the law. So the punishment was given to only those people the government deemed guilty of the most heinous crimes. This is the kind of lashing that It's talked about when Jesus is taken to a Roman pillar and he is tied with thongs and then they take. Sometimes the beating would be with a rod. Sometimes it would be with a cat of nine tails. Here he's talking about lashes. And the lashes would have been leather strips and those leather strips would have had pieces of bone, pieces of metal, pieces of glass attached to it. And it didn't happen once. And it didn't happen twice, not just three times or four times, but five times. He says, three times I was beaten with rods. A rod was a stick that was typically the same composition as your thumb. It was a long wooden pole. And again, you would be strapped down and you would be beaten. Now again... Three times he says, I was beaten with rods because Gentiles don't have 39 lashes minus one. And so how many times he was beaten? He says three times. How many times that entails, we're not told. He says, once I was stoned. And he's not talking about the 60s. (laughs) Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've been in the deep. By the way, the only case mentioned in the New Testament, again, was his punishment in Philippi in Acts chapter 14, verse 9. The stoning, like I said, was so severe that he was dragged outside of the city, three times shipwrecked. And by the way, not all the trials were at the hands of men. So he's saying, okay, these things happened to me, and these other things happened according to the weather. Three times he's shipwrecked. There's overwhelming circumstances. And by the way, none of the shipwrecks are recorded. And you might be thinking, oh, but what about Acts chapter 27, where Paul is shipwrecked? You're right. Acts chapter 27, Paul is shipwrecked, but that shipwreck has yet to take place when Paul is writing these words. This is something yet in the future. This is excluding that shipwreck. A day and a night I've been in the deep. Paul doesn't give any explanation. It may refer to a dungeon. It may refer to the sea. Was Paul actually on a piece of wood drifting in the ocean? Was he on a raft? We're not given any explanation. Except for this. What all of these things have in common. He survived. He survived. He survived. And he survived again. The miracle of God. The amazing sovereignty of God. He survives each and every time. And then in verse 26, he says, in journeys, often. 
in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils of the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren. Yeah, there's eight perils there. And for those of you who grew up and you remember the perils of Pauline, this is a different peril with a different Paul. Look at that little phrase, in journeys, often. If you want to know more about that simple phrase, just go to the back of your Bible. For those of you who have a Bible, you should have an index of maps. And some of you have a Bible, and in that index, you have Paul's first and second journeys. You have Paul's third and fourth journeys. And if you look at the journeys of Paul, you can look and you can trace the steps where he went and how he got there and all of the things that he did. But what you might not be aware of is that traveling in the first century isn't like traveling now. It wasn't even like traveling in the 1920s or the 1930s. What we sometimes forget is just how primitive travel conditions were and that he's walking And he's walking and he's walking and he's serving and he's exposed to every kind of danger. He lists the different kinds of perils. There's eight of them. Perils of water, swollen rivers and streams, perils of robbers, the routes that he go. It's infested with criminals and highway robbers, perils from countrymen, Jews, as well as heathens, Gentiles, perils in the city. Again, you trace through the first journey and the second journey, the third journey, the fourth journey. He's going to Lystra. He's going to Derby. He's going to Philippi. He's going to Corinth. He's going to Ephesus. And wherever he goes and however he gets there, almost two things you can know for sure. There's going to be a riot. He's going to be beaten. He's going to be tossed in jail. God's going to miraculously spare his life and then he's going to be released. Perils in the wilderness. These are the thinly populated areas of Syria, Asia Minor, Turkey. Perils in the seas, storms, hidden rocks, perhaps pirates. Perils from false brethren, Jewish legalists disguised as Christian teachers. Weariness in toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. I know what some of you are thinking. Well, Paul, why don't you just claim the victory? Paul, why don't you understand that you're the head and not the tail? And why don't you just simply walk in victory? Are you reading this and understanding what's happening? That a person who loves Jesus and is called by God sometimes experiences unbelievable hardship. That's part of the point. The list continues. Weariness. Fatigue. Toil, that means real work. Tent making along the way. In hunger and thirst. And it's for the reason that you probably have already come to. That's because he doesn't have any food. And that's because he doesn't have any water. In fastings often, oh look at how spiritual Paul is. He fasted on a regular basis. This isn't a spiritual fast. This is because there's no food. In cold. And nakedness. I know what you're thinking. Paul, I thought you were a tent maker. Didn't you just carry one around with you? Like an REI backpack kind of a situation? No, he is exposed. That's the whole point. And then in verse 28, he says, Besides the other things, what things that come upon me daily? My deep concern for all of the the churches. Now think about where Paul's going with this. What other things? Paul has spoken on dangers on the outside, difficulties on the outside, and now Paul speaks of difficulties on the inside, things that trouble the mind and the heart. Paul speaks of the steady burden of all the Christian churches that God has placed in his care. I want to ask you a question. We've just gone through this huge laundry list. 
Do you find it odd that Paul would place this concern at the end? This is kind of the climax. This is a problem. That's a problem. This is a problem. Waters, robbers, countrymen, city, wilderness, seas, false brethren, toil, weariness, hunger, thirst, cold, nakedness. But I think this is the apex. I think that this is the thing that weighs the most heavy and causes him the deepest concern. And the reason is because he's a pastor. And the reason is because he loves and cares for the congregation. He is no hireling. He is an under-shepherd of Jesus Christ. You know, someone has said, church making is heartbreaking and church mending is never ending. I like that. I know it to be true. Because I've spent my whole life planting churches. And then seeing those churches in difficult times. Where hurting people need desperate help. And so Paul writes in verse 29, Who is weak? And I'm not weak. Who is made to stumble? And I don't burn with indignation. Do you understand what Paul is saying? When he hears about someone's infirmity, when he hears about someone's weakness, when he hears that someone has been stumbled, when he understands that someone is going through something, he offers sympathy. When he learns that a brother or sister has been wrongly stumbled, he burns with indignation. What affects the people of God affects him. He sorrows in their tragedies. He rejoices in their triumphs. And that's what he brags about. That's what he boasts about. He says, if I must boast, I will boast in the things which concern my infirmity. Do you understand what he's saying again? All of these things that I've just listed has taken its toll. It's taken a toll on my body, and it's taken a toll on my heart. It's taken a toll on my mind. And so Paul chooses not to boast in his apostolic accomplishment. He doesn't boast in the fact that he's received a vision from Jesus. He doesn't boast about the fact that he spent 12 years in the wilderness perfecting a theology. He doesn't boast in dreams and visions. He doesn't boast in writings and converts. He doesn't boast in gifts and abilities. He boasts in weakness, reproach, indignity, imprisonment, scars. So how are we to think about that? How are we to think about the perils of Paul? And so in verse 31 he says, The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever, knows that I'm not lying. You know, some Bible teachers are given to what I call evangelasticity. It's where there is this sense in which they stretch the truth. But Paul makes the statement, I haven't mentioned these things for any other reason other than they're true. You see, it's easier to suffer in silence if you're sure someone is watching. Paul suffers in silence because he knows that the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever, sees him every moment of every day, in every stripe, in every illness, in every suffering, in every 
deprivation in every disappointment. Some of you are familiar with the story of Adoniram Judson. He was a very famous missionary to Burma, and he endured unspeakable hardships in trying to reach the people of Burma Burma with the gospel of Jesus Christ. For seven heartbreaking years, he suffered hunger, and he suffered deprivation. And during that time, he was enthroned into what was called the Ava prison. And for 17 months, he was subjected to some of the most incredible mistreatment that you could imagine. And as a result, for the rest of his life, he carried the ugly marks made by the chains and the iron shackles which had cruelly bound him. But the hardships didn't serve to dissuade Judson. Upon his release, he asked for permission to enter into another province where he could preach the gospel. And the godless ruler indignantly denied his request, saying, My people aren't fools. Enough to listen to anything a missionary might have to say. But they might be impressed by your scars. And that might cause them to turn to your religion. What really impresses you? Credentials? Seminary? Knowledge of the Greek and Hebrew? What in the end really impresses you? And I'm going to suggest to you, it's what Paul has been saying all along. It's a person who will love you and teach you and won't abuse you and won't hurt you. And so he gives this little insight. He says in verse 32, In Damascus, the governor under Aretas the king, who happened to be the king of Nabatea, was guarding the city of the Damascenes, that's Damascus in Syria, with a garrison desiring to arrest me. But I was let down in a basket through the window in the wall and escaped from his hand. So why does Paul bring this up? After doing all of this, why does he talk about this close call with this brush with death? Why does he bring up a close encounter of the terminal kind. I'm going to suggest to you a reason that I think he puts it here. I'm going to suggest to you that it may have been one of the most humiliating episodes in Paul's life up to that point. For those of you who are unfamiliar with it, it's recorded in detail in Acts chapter 9, verses 19 through 25 where Luke recounts the situation. After Paul's conversion in Damascus, Paul took it upon himself to preach the gospel in the synagogues of the city. And at first his his preaching aroused curiosity and then outrage. And the Jews plotted to kill him. And they watched the gates... And they watched them every day in the hope that they would find him and they would apprehend him. And so in order for him to escape with his life, he had to come to the top of the wall. He had to get inside of a basket and the brothers had to let him down over a rope or in a basket. It was, it was a source of shame and ridicule. It could very well be that people were thinking, hey, do you remember that thing, that incident that happened with Paul? What a coward. Now again, as you read the laundry list of all that Paul has been through, does the word coward come to your mind? Paul's a lot of things. But he's not a coward. But I think the reason why he includes this, Paul is willing to be viewed as a coward. If that will bring people to Jesus. If it will in any way honor the Lord. I think that Paul has pointed this out. Because very powerful people were interested in making it impossible for Paul to minister. But God in his grace and his mercy allows Paul to be delivered from the hands of very powerful people who are intent 
on permanently stopping him. I think it goes to the heart of part of the question. Are there people who are trying to ruin Paul's ministry, ruin his opportunity, and mislead the people? And I think that the answer is yes. And so Paul points out that other people have tried and other people have failed. And again, Paul doesn't point to the most important thing that he's done but the most humiliating thing that he's done. Will Paul meet with kings? Yes. Will Paul stand before governors? Yes. Will he give his testimony to the movers and the shakers of the first century? The answer is yes. But when Paul is asked for his credentials, he shows them his scars. What do you show people when they ask you about what gives you the right to talk about Jesus? Amy Carmichael wrote this wonderful poem. She said, Hast thou no scar? No hidden scar on foot or side or hand? I hear thee sung as mighty in the land. I hear them hail thy bright ascendant star. Hast thou no scar? Hast thou no wound? Yet I was wounded by the archers, spent, leaned me against the tree to die, and rent by ravening beasts that compassed me, I swooned. Hast thou no wound? No scar? No wound, yet as the master shall the servant be, and pierced are the feet that follow me, but thine are whole. Can he have followed far, who has no wound or scar? What have you to show? For your love, for your service, for your commitment, for your submission. And so note what Paul does. He doesn't appeal to the fact that he is quite arguably the smartest person of his generation. Quite arguably, other than the Lord Jesus Christ, the person who is going to make the deepest contribution on how we think about what it means to know and love Jesus. But he submits for the Corinthians' approval. Scars. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, sometimes we distance ourselves from the things that we think have gone horribly wrong. Lord, we forget the admonition that those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Lord, sometimes we forget that in our willingness in just simplicity and honesty and humility to just simply know and love Jesus, that there will be people who will not be content with that. And Heavenly Father, we, even at this very moment, think of our brother who is imprisoned in a jail in Iran simply for providing strength and support for the Christian brothers and sisters who are there. Our brothers and sisters who are incarcerated in Vietnam. Our brothers and sisters who find themselves in the darkest hole and in the deepest dungeon in Saudi Arabia, in Somalia, in Eritrea. Lord, we know that we have brothers and sisters who, in obedience and submission, have just simply refused to do anything other than tell people the truth about Jesus. And it's cost them their family, it's cost them their job. For some, 
It's put a heavy pressure on them. And so, Heavenly Father, again, we pray, we pray, we pray that you would awaken in our hearts the truth about what it means to know you and love you, the truth about what we can safely brag about and what we would probably be better off not mentioning. Lord, we pray that in our sufferings, And in our humblings, that, Lord, we would be reminded that you take weak things, broken things, in order to bring glory to yourself. And Heavenly Father, again, we remember our Lord, who serves as the greatest example. That, Lord, Jesus washed feet. That he wrapped a towel around himself. And that, Lord, he humbled himself in service to those who literally didn't deserve it. And Heavenly Father, we suspect that Jesus will retain scars for all eternity. So, Lord, again, prepare our hearts. And, Heavenly Father, I pray in particular for that person who doesn't know you but wants to. That they understand that they're a sinner in need of a Savior. That they want to experience forgiveness of sin and newness of life. And, Heavenly Father, I pray that in the simplicity of their heart and with all earnestness that they would turn from their sin and that they would turn to you that they would admit that they're sinners in need of a Savior and that Jesus Christ, who is alive and well, can transform their heart and change them fully and completely and eternally. And Lord, we commit that to you. We pray that you would transform them, that you would call them, change them. In Jesus' name.